So I don't think I heard the term incompetent cervix until after he was born. Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mighty Littles podcast. I am so excited to have this episode be the continuation of last week. Last week, Gretchen shared with us her birth story of going into labor at 22 and a half weeks and ultimately delivering her baby, Alex, at 23 weeks, weighing just over a pound. And so today, we're going to finish up that interview and really talk about Alex's NICU stay and kind of the ramifications for Gretchen and her life after the NICU stay and how that went. Because we thought I was going to make it longer. And then three o'clock in the morning, I wake up, need to use the bathroom, go to the bathroom. And I'm like sitting there and I'm like, something doesn't feel right. And I reach down and he kicks me with his little foot. But yeah, I mean, that was, and we knew that's what, like, we knew this was our worst case scenario and it was, Aaron wasn't in there. Um, and then I, like, my worst fear, which is what was waking up from surgery, not knowing if my son had made it. I think, you know, I've actually been hesitant to do anything like this because um, what I don't want to do and what was, could, was, I want to say, people would see us you know, like when Alex was like 10 weeks old and they would be like fresh with their 23 weeker and like be like, your child gives me hope. And like the statistics are the statistics. Him surviving didn't make it more likely that their child would. And it, I didn't want to give, like I was so like afraid of giving people false hope. And I think you're very honest about how difficult those decisions are when they're coming at you and how hard it is to have an emergency C-section under general anesthesia and not know when you wake up if your baby is still here or not. Right. Right. Yeah. And it was, oh my gosh, like what a terrible. So Aaron was waiting outside of the OR and when they rolled him out, he had called my, my family and my sister was with my parents. So they came right back. So my sister came like running down the hallway just as they were wheeling Alex out. So like she saw him hours before I did, which is just so, I mean, I was like unconscious still for like two hours after that. Um, it was, it was like four hours after I woke up at six hours after he was born before I got to see him. And he's just so tiny, his little, his thigh was the his the, his upper thigh where they had that little blood pressure cuff was the thickness of my pinky so he was like a pound and a quarter um 580 580 grams um yeah just i mean nothing like i thought he would look like and i just my first thought was that he was just too small like there's absolutely no way the doctors can make this work like that was i think i like said that out loud as i was like he is too small like this is not no body fat he's like 11 inches long um and it's just yeah it was just like super overwhelming and this like in his skin like I didn't know that their skin was so immature nobody would say that this was for sure what happened but he had a birth injury um so he had this big scab on his back well like now that he's um so they're treating that for infection for days and I didn't even see it um what else did he have he had a chest tube in so he's got a little scar from the chest tube I forgot about that completely and then the umbilical line 
Um, and then he was intubated and he had, he didn't have a pick line yet, but he has little sunglasses on and he was in like a heads up position for some, to try to prevent brain bleeds, I guess, which we did, he prevented them. He didn't have a single one, but my understanding from what he said, he got, he got the back injury, um, when they were pulling him out because essentially it was that, so he had come through my cervix up to his neck. Um, so when they did the C-section, they had to pull him back up through my cervix and what it looks like, if you look at his back now, is that somebody had their was pulling him out and had their thumb on his back and it slipped and their skin is so thin. So he's basically got a thumbprint of a doctor on his back, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> so they wouldn't tell me that. Like they're like, they always kind of blew it off. It's like, I don't, sometimes these things just happen. And I really wish someone had been like, that's my thumb. And their skin is, I mean, it's, it's translucent, it's see-through, it it just sloughs off with a single touch. And, and yeah. so it is very easy to get damage to the skin. And if he right. had kind of wedged himself down in there, sometimes they've got to put some some oomph behind it to get him to get him out Aaron didn't stay in too long because he was just having trouble like it was so overwhelming for him so he stepped out and I stayed in there for a little bit with my dad and but I ended up then I had a uterine infection and then blood infection after that because they were trying to discharge me like two days later and I started spiking fevers basically every time I pumped um because I was pumping exclusively and then Alex started getting new infections afterwards and I don't know if it was related like the infection that I had with him three infections the first time and that's what the NICU became for us was like we were getting past these big things like he didn't have a brain bleed his GI was doing okay but he was really thin he was so he was a pound and four ounces when he was born he went down to a pound and one ounce and it took him over a month to get back to his birth weight so I had a one-month-old baby that didn't even weigh a pound and a quarter. When you think about his NICU stay, how would you kind of summarize it and put brackets around it, right? So uh, you avoided the brain bleed. Mm-hmm. He must have had lung disease to start with because you mentioned that he had a chest tube. Right. Uh, how long did he need to be on the ventilator? Do you remember? We were on the vent. The first time was six weeks. I think about maybe seven weeks um, and they weaned him to the, the cannula. Um, and then he went back on it in two weeks within two weeks. He just started desatting like crazy. Um, so they reventilated him. And I think that was for three more weeks. So probably about two and a half months total. Okay. Um, before he was on the cannula and then he stayed on oxygen until he was seven months old. Okay. Um, so we had him home at five. So we had him on oxygen at home. At home um, as well. Yeah. And we weren't sure. Um, it was kind of interesting. One of our neonatologists who kind of like ended up taking a special interest in Alex and having him on his caseload a lot. He was a former respiratory therapist. Um, respiratory therapists, I don't think get enough credit for what they do. That is true. Uh, they were awesome. Um, but he was a prior respiratory therapist and he ended up doing something that they didn't typically do. So they used a drug called Decadron to get him off of, am I saying that right? Decadron? Mm-hmm. Okay. Off of um, the ventilator the first time. And I think, I'm trying to remember, I think they gave it to him for a day or two and then they took him off the ventilator and he like did great for like a couple of days. And then slowly it just got worse and worse until he was like going blue 
um, and needing like hundred percent oxygen again and needing to be intubated. And that was a really bad night for us. Um, and that wasn't, that was in March. Um, the second time when we were coming off, he wanted to do something different and it was, um, I don't know. It made a lot of sense to me too. And I, I guess it worked is he started, they, they started him on Decadron and like immediately extubated him because he was doing really well. And then they just kept him on Decadron for like longer than they normally would. But after he was extubated so that his body was like getting used to, and that, that one was the one that stuck. I mean, he's also older, but it like seemed to work. So I sent you, I sent you one picture where he's got like these little narwhal cutouts on his cannula and his cheeks are super fat. And that's from the, they call them decadron cheeks. Yeah. Or, yeah. They get these like... big fat cheeks. But yeah, they, they, they yeah. do steer. And babies also get roid rage, right? Like they get really mad sometimes yeah. when they're on the decadron too. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's lungs. Heart. Were there any heart issues? He did. So he had a PFA. PDA or PFO? PFO and a PDA. Thank you. So the PDA is the blood vessel that's outside the heart that needs to close. And the PFO is a little hole. It's like a flap between the top two chambers of the heart that's supposed to be open in utero. And then that flap kind of closes. And they're both open when we're born. And they both should close over the first couple weeks to months of life. Right. Okay. So yeah, so his were open. Um, the PDA was larger than they would have liked. So we initially thought that we would be having a surgery before we were able to leave. Um, and it closed a little bit and then it kind of stopped and then Tylenol, they gave him Tylenol and it closed. Perfect. What else was there? Brain? It was just nothing. There was just nothing. nothing. Feeding, no problems with feeding. No problems with feeding. Um, he needed a lot of transfusions. I want to say eight or nine the whole time we were there. So that would, they would stop the feeding for a while, but he did, yep. he was um, tube fed through his nose um, like the whole time. I yep. think like a week before he was discharged. Yep. Um, he had started, like we were able to bottle feed him. We attempted to breastfeed. He just could never figure it out. I tried so hard to breastfeed this child. The problem was, so I, I had to pump so much. I just kept getting mastitis um, if I didn't. So like, I tried to leave some in to lower my supply, which I, I understand like this is not the problem most preemie moms have. And I'm really grateful that that wasn't like not having enough milk wasn't the stress, but there were, there were um, challenges having as much milk as I did too. Cause I was pumping like over half a gallon a day at one point. Yeah. So yeah. So feeding, he never really had a problem with it. Um, it seems like blood infection and blood transfusions were really his big issues in the NICU. Right. So his, he's going to hate me for this someday for saying this. He had like extra foreskin. Um, again, very personal decision. I would never influence anybody either way. I personally did not want to circumcise after like doing my own research and why, what I want to do. So I didn't want to, um, what, it, what his infections, I don't know what the first two were from, cause those were a different, whatever bacteria or whatever, but, um, he kept getting UTIs. He had like nine UTIs, which was holding up his weight gain. He'd get a UTI, he'd have to go on antibiotics, he'd like have to slow or stop feeds, and he'd get a transfusion. And it just became this, like, like it was keeping him from gaining weight. And it was just like, it felt like every other day there was an infection. Um, so I ended up like having to, that was, 
they didn't really say it like it was an option. They're like, we're going to circumcise him the second we can. And like, honestly, as soon as they did it, he didn't, he hasn't had another one since then. Yeah. There, I mean, there are occasionally medical reasons to do a circumcision and recurrent urinary tract infections, particularly in preemies is one of them. And we do the same thing when we have babies that, I mean, it's not frequent um, that we come across this, but you know, every couple of years, we'll have a baby that just has recurrent urinary tract infections and we get them big enough that we can finally do the circumcision and the infections go away. For the majority of people, or for the majority the majority of males, it, it has nothing to do with it. But every now and then it does. Again, yeah. why decisions need to be based on each individual person. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's not something I think I would have done in any other situation, but it's, I mean, I was there. I forgot about that till just now. I was there. I held his arms down. <laughs> so terrible. About his dad was like, I'm not doing this. You have to do it. <laughs> okay. Well, it's nice they even let you in. A lot of people won't let you in during a circumcision. Yeah, they just did it at the at, at his crib. Oh, nice. <laughs> that works. Yeah. Oh, so bad. I've completely forgot about that. There's so, and it's like a huge thing, right? There's like so many huge things in the NICU that you just don't even remember. Right. You don't. That's why, I mean, that's why you have to take pictures every day so yeah. that you actually have something to look back on. I did not take pictures of the circumcision, but. Excellent. <laughs> so, so overall, it sounds like he really had not that, he didn't have that many complications of prematurity for a 23 week baby. No. And it's, I mean, that's what was really amazing was like, even within the first week, the doctors were like, this isn't what we were expecting. We were expecting like that he'd need like a brain shunt or there'd be like some major problems, um, that he'd have a GI bleed. Um, we definitely, we definitely had a couple scares where we weren't sure. Um, and like the first, like his oxygen was at a hundred percent for a long time. He did have ROP. Um, so he ended up having shots twice. And then when we transferred hospitals, um, back to Savannah, the, the eye doctor there was like, I just want to do the surgery cause they don't want to. So he had the laser surgery right? just before he was a year, I think at like eight months or something. Um, so he's had some loss of vision, um, and he's got ankle braces on cause his ankles weren't quite formed. And that's, kind of it <laughs> and yeah. which is um for a 23 weeker is just not it's pretty amazing yeah that's yeah. just not common um so I don't you know it's this is not what we saw coming um it's just I think I personally have had a hard time and this sounds this sounds so weird it's hard to even say this I've had a hard time like emotionally adjusting to what I've expected happening versus what happened because it's right. like the wait like this constant waiting for the other shoe to drop for probably like two years and then it's like accepting that like I can just move forward with my life now (laughs) like it's not has been and it sounds I mean it sounds weird and like awful to say that because we got you know like I know everybody's got their struggles but I think it's to not acknowledge that there's been like adjustment problems for me as well like as yeah, regardless of which which direction it is, right. you're you're right. constantly trying to adjust. Yeah, yeah. So NICU is a lot of trauma. I mean, just awful. I think um, I at some point, and I don't know. I mean, we had residents and and attendings and nurses, and like nobody actually looked at me and said, "Your kid's gonna get discharged from the NICU" until he was like four months old. Right. So I'm like four months in, 
not convinced that we're going to leave with a baby. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's going to go home with you. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> like, you know, so you mentioned how the NICU is, is full of trauma. What do you mm-hmm. think were was the hardest thing about the NICU? Either, either the hardest thing or your hardest moment in the NICU? So, I mean, this was, it's interesting again, because we, we did this before COVID, but being so far from home, um, like we didn't have friends around. So there was just like a loneliness there, um, and feeling isolated and like our parents would come, but they weren't like right around the corner. So they would come and they'd have to go back. And like, so we were there alone a lot, just like in this town, 500 miles from home, living in a very tiny Ronald McDonald house like thank God for the Ronald McDonald house they were fantastic and such a blessing but like you live in one of those rooms with a full-size bed for <laughs> for five months it gets real yeah real absolutely that was one piece of it that was hard um the first infection was really scary because it was like you know he was doing really well and then he got infected so on the flip side then what what were what were kind of your best moments in the NICU just as he started to get older and was like reacting to us and there was like a certain nurse, um, she was Jamaican and he would like, even if he was sleeping, he'd like react to her voice. So you could tell he was starting to like recognize different people. Um, and, and seeming to know us, um, we started, it's so hard to like know what to say to this like teeny tiny human. So an Aaron, um, Aaron's a writer and he struggles with things, you know, I could talk forever, but he doesn't have the gift of gab, I guess, like I do. Um, So we started reading, we read Harry Potter books. We read uh, how to, he, he read how to own a dragon, how to train your dragon, how to train your dragon. That's it. Um, And yeah, just all, we just read him all kinds of books just constantly. So we would do, he would read the, voices of Harry Potter and I would read the narration and stuff and like that was like a really special moment um and now I mean Alex is obsessed with books just obsessed with books which is super cute um so on the outside though we called it um sad Christmas um we like the support that we had even like though we were so separated was unbelievable and it wasn't just like it wasn't just about gifts, but like, I have like this stack of cards. Oh my gosh. Hundreds of cards from strangers, from friends, from people I haven't seen in years, from friends of friends. Um, Coast Guard was like, oh my gosh. They said like, it was not just my unit. Like my unit was fantastic. They like took care of my house, took care of my pets, took care of painting the nursery and all of my stuff and mowing my lawn and buying me a lawnmower and like a million things. Um, and we're super supportive I made sure, like, I didn't have anything to worry about when I was there, like, at all. Like, they just, I w- they just gave me the time and space that I needed to be with my son every day, which is what I needed. Um, and, but the other, other units too, like, I got, like, a really nice package from one of the surrounding units. And um, there, the, there was a spouse's association in that area. So I don't know anybody in that area. And there was a group of wives who decided, um, that they were going to just take care of me. So they'd come pick me up like once a week and take me out to lunch. Um, or oh, like, that's visit. so wonderful. It was great. So like on one hand, like I don't have my friends and on the other hand, there's just these women who are like, you're ours now. And, and got me, they'd bring me stuff, bring me like 
pumping supplies and baby stuff. And, but one of them showed, just showed up and dropped off like this whole bag of books um, that from her and her kids. And it was just like, so I makes me want to cry thinking about it still, just what these, what they did for us. And it was so, so important. Um, and that was, I think that was really helpful. Um, and just not just good. Cause like we needed it, but like realizing now, like, how good people can be mm-hmm. so and how kind and how much like strangers knew what you need in the rise to the occasion is just really a nice thing to feel about people yeah. in general oh no so. that's awesome we hear about you know the roller coaster of the NICU and mm-hmm. people who have listened to the podcast are, are going to know that I really call it the turbulence of the NICU because mm-hmm. you know you're kind of smooth sailing and then the, the you know air falls right. out from underneath you and you just feel right. like you drop and then you come back up and Nobody stands in line to be in the NICU and you don't know how the NICU is roller coaster is going to end. And in a regular roller coaster, you know, you're going to be safe and you, you can handle those, those ups and downs. But, you know, the NICU really is very turbulent. What helped you navigate that turbulence? I mean, it sounds like you had a really good support system and people that came out of the woodwork to kind of help, but, but what helped you navigate that turbulence? I really, I mean, largely like the support from people. I mean, it was, it was tough. It was, we had some dark times and like not great feelings. We got into a routine as much as we could. Um, if I were to do it again, I would give myself a lot more grace for not being there as much as we were. Cause we basically were there at like seven in the morning until noon every day. And then we'd take like the afternoon, which is when like our families, if they were in town would go sit with him. We like wanted somebody there all the time. Like, like he would have known, he would have known for most of the time. And then we would go back from like six until eight. So we were there, I mean, probably, you know, close to like full-time job hours and um but we got into the routine of it was good because we knew we'd basically like i'd go back and i'd pump and i'd sleep and we'd like get dinner and maybe go do something like go out for dinner um what i will say about norfolk is it has some amazing food again so i didn't lose any pregnancy weight before we left for sure um so, and, and then Aaron and I, um, I mean, the other nice thing is we, we like to grab a glass of wine or a beer and there were a lot of, um, bars. So a lot of time we'd like put Alex to bed and we would just go walk down and grab a beer and a soft pretzel or something and like take some time for ourselves. Um, and that, that kind of stuff was really important. I got really obsessed with my hair. <laughs> so I was doing like, my hair is actually, it's not right now, but normally curly, like really curly. So I got into like the curly girl method um, it was, and like trying out these different products and stuff. Cause it just gave me something else to focus on. Right. Um, yeah. Put your mind somewhere else. I watched a lot of TV at night. <laughs> yeah. Found, of- found some uh, YouTube or not YouTube, uh, Netflix things to, to watch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we had like, uh, we got a Nintendo switch and like a fire stick. Cause we, you know, you're there forever. Like we don't have anything. We got, yeah. Movies and, um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of a weird, cause we were there, we were there at the NICU so much. Um, and then when it got closer and he was doing better, we, we would occasionally like one of us would go home for the weekend and kind of take care of the house a bit and start getting things ready. Um, so taking some time for ourselves like that too. Right. When it started to feel a little bit safer to be away from the unit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, but mostly, I mean, just getting through the stress, I just, 
I just had so many people that I could just call at any time. And my, like my best friend and she's pregnant now and she just got past 23 weeks in one day. And like, neither one of us said anything to each other. <laughs> just like, we're just not going to say a word. She's going to move right on by. Yeah. She's now like later at some point, I'll probably be like, you know, you're more pregnant than I've ever been. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, she was just available to me like anytime. And there were a lot of people who were, and um, just knowing that we could, ask for ask for help you know the statistics of parents that have a baby in the NICU Mm -hmm. are not very great right um the statistics for parents that have multiples are also not very great um and I don't know if that's simply from the multiples or because multiples are more likely to be in the NICU um but I Remember when I found out I was pregnant with twins, my OB, who was also my friend, ever so kindly pointed out at our first visit that the divorce rate amongst parents of multiples is 70%. The divorce rate amongst parents of NICU babies is also in the 70% uh, 70 to 80% range. Now, take that with a little bit of a grain of whatever you want to make it um, because the baseline divorce rate in the United States is 50%. So it's already super high and, but it's clear when you add stress, whether that's with a NICU stay or with multiples that there is stress on the relationship. Some parents going through the NICU actually find that the NICU brings them closer. They have similar coping mechanisms and they do okay. And other families find that the NICU really is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. How did you and dad navigate your stress through the NICU? And did you guys have similar coping mechanisms or really different coping mechanisms? And how did it change your relationship and how you parent? Right. So, um, yeah, so we have been we've been divorced since last December. Uh, we separated about six months after six, six months after Alex was born. Um, and what I'll say is like, so, okay. Coping mechanism wise, I don't even know if this is considered a coping mechanism. So thinking a lot about it. Um, I think it definitely wasn't, I don't know if I even want to say it's the straw. It, it, I don't know if it was the straw as much as, um, this like huge festering infection <laughs> like the NICU stay because it just brought a lot of stuff to light um I think or helped like opened up fractures that maybe were already there and I think um part of it was this this way we kind of went into it and it's um I don't think either way is bad I there's I don't have hard feelings like we there's not a lot of hard feelings we co-parent 50 50 and we do things together as a family I consider Aaron to be my family um still so it's you know there's a lot of good there um but I was in this mindset immediately it's so weird to say this because it's it's just like I would definitely give the opposite advice of it's inevitable that our child's not going to make it and we need to accept that so that when it happens, we're prepared. Whereas I felt like, and I don't want to speak for him, but I felt like Aaron was in this denial mindset of 
we're going to have hope. He's going to be fine, which just made me angry because I'm like, you're not living in reality with me when it ended up being reality. <laughs> so I was the one not living in reality and then struggling for a long time. Um, and not to say that he didn't struggle, but like I struggled for a really long time afterwards with, um, yeah, just waiting for the other shoe to drop because I, I like absolutely refused to have hope because I felt like if I wanted it, it wouldn't happen. And he felt like if I was so, again, I won't speak for him, but it seemed to me that he felt like if I was so in denial of hope that that would be bad too. So there was a lot of tension with that between like, um, me not having hope and then feeling like he had too much, which is such a terrible thing to say. Like it's, Oh my gosh, if I could go back, I would just be like, you can have hope Gretchen. It's okay to have hope. Like it's not a bad thing, but it felt to me like poison. Um, Cause I was just so scared of like what it would feel like if I wouldn't believe it or refuse to believe it. And it happened. Like, I didn't want to, I didn't think that I'd be able to handle that. Right. Um, so that, that from, from my side, I think caused a lot um, of tension. And I think like, ultimately we just under that much stress, it's really hard to get along with people. Um, and I think the thing with marriage, like when I think about marriage now um, and why there's like a high divorce rate um, is like how many people have really been through the worst thing you could go through by the time they get married. So you make these promises and it's hard to like even conceive of what good times and bad times means. Um, I remember when that, that first day that I was in the hospital before anyone was there, I remember texting a friend of mine and saying like, I didn't know that sadness could feel like this. And like, I've been sad before and it wasn't even that necessarily anything had happened yet. Like Alex came home, I didn't lose my child, but like the thought and accepting that that might be, that was like likely a possibility. I have never felt like that before. And, um, and I just barely dipped my toes into that. So, um, so I think about like when, when you're going, like people are going through this worst thing or just facing that, like, I don't think there's anything, um, like shameful or wrong with it. I just, I think a lot, I would suspect a lot of times they're just maybe hasn't, like you haven't gone through that rough of some, an experience with somebody and it's just hard to know if you're compatible in that. Um, and I think it's great when you are, um, and it's really hard when you're not. And if it's, if you're in a relationship that it's making it harder for either one of you in any ways, like that's, that's really tough. Um, so it doesn't, I, I mean, I think I remember reading that at one point while we were there and I was like surprised at first, but also like later on just not that it's, um, you know, there's so much tension. I mean, I just remember in the, I don't know, tension among other couples and, um, you know, I've seen, I mean, we've seen, I had talked about like knowing a lot of other couples there who had um, their, who uh, who had 23 weekers or earlier or later. Um, and some of them, like you could see it drawing them closer. Um, and like, I'm friends with some of them years later and some of them like experienced the loss and it was awful and they're, they're like closer. Um, and I, that just doesn't happen to, to everybody. So. Right. And, um, and, and I don't think that there's, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's great if it brings you together. And, and I don't think it's a failure on the part of the parents mm-hmm. where it 
drives them more apart. It's it just is a circumstance of what happened, right? It's not like the people that got drawn closer together tried harder. It's just right. that their coping mechanisms were more in line or 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 whatever. I I don't I mean I'm not I'm not in psych. I don't I don't know what they are, right. but I think it's important for people to know that it's not your fault. It's not because you didn't try hard enough. It's just right. part of life. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, I mean, for that too, it's also not because like one partner didn't try. So like, I don't think, I don't find Aaron or I more at fault about like, you know, he had hope and I didn't like, I don't, it's just how we function. And like, I still, I don't know if I could go into something else like that again without having to be really realistic about, and that's just who I am. Right. Uh, whereas I think, you know, he's got more of that. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, he might, he might, that's the perception I had of his, feeling so I don't know like he would probably put it a different way um but that's just you know from my perspective it seemed like that was that was what was going on or what he might be feeling or what I was perceiving that he was feeling at that time um so I think um like the really interesting parts are we then so he had had to quit his job to come up and then we couldn't I had to go back to duty um they gave me my maternity leave when he got out of the NICU. So I had time to like bond with him at home and finish taking him to appointments and get him through his eye surgery and stuff. Um, and then I went back to work and my work was like, I'd stay overnight at the station, um, you know, 15 days a month. And um, so he couldn't, we couldn't do daycare. We couldn't do any of that because he was at such high risk of RSV and colds. And they, I mean, they told us they're like, he could die from a cold mm-hmm. in the first year. So we just, locked it down. <laughs> it's it so crazy that we do this. So we separated knowing we were going to have to live together until Aaron could go back to work when Alex was like maybe a little bit over a year and then COVID hit. And so we ended up, we lived together from separated from July of 2019 until this past May. Um, he just moved out. <laughs> I mean, I moved him to Virginia. Are we, are, you know, we moved, I used my, um, my last military move to move us here and um, we got, got settled and then he got a job and we kind of, and got Alex in daycare once, once we felt more comfortable with his, uh, his immune system and stuff. So uh, how did you make that work? Difficult. <laughs> so um, I was talking to him about this recently that like, not only so we're like separated and I'm at work and then COVID happens and then work calls me and says hey we've determined you're a high-risk family so we're just going to keep you home until we tell you otherwise at this point we're two weeks to flatten the curve it ended up being like 10 weeks that they kept me home um and I start calling and I'm like can I come back <laughs> like can I maybe um because now we are we can't even go grocery shopping like to get away from each other <laughs> so it was comical in retrospect, not so much then, but we just, you know, we had to make it work. We'd cook, we'd go for walks together. Like we had, a, we had um, one of our dogs at that point, my sister kept the crazy one. Um, and we had Alice and we'd take her for walks and Alex for walks in the mornings. Um, and then we would just like kind of split up the day that I would like go running in the morning for miles and miles and miles <laughs> and then come back and shower and, um, we put Alex down for a nap and then Aaron would do some um, writing work and stuff. So it just, again, like very regimented and very like 
split off and it, it was tough. We watched a lot of movies. I personally feel like it was probably one of the best things that could happen for a co-parenting relationship because I think we were really forced to figure out how to how to be together um the best way for Alex and not to say that I mean it's not like there weren't challenges like I don't want to pretend like it was all hunky-dory and we just made soft pretzels and watched movies um but we we've had to figure out not for the marriage like just for Alex how to resolve conflicts um and I think we're not we're definitely not perfect at it but we've gotten a lot better from my perspective no I Um, I think that's awesome I think perhaps it was helpful that you were forced to do it and perhaps it's helpful that you had this external to you very important and still fragile goal that you Mm -hmm. were aiming for that took so much effort that 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 kind of gives you both something to kind of focus on um I wouldn't like recommend that people continue to cohabitate by choice for 17 months after they separate but (laughs) but you guys managed to make it work and are co-parenting and have done a nice job with it so yeah we're working on it so it's good I mean it's I think Alex is doing great and we we do we like on days that we um switch off like sometimes we'll do something together or we'll Okay, do you want to do the speed round really, really quick? Okay, so speed round. I think it's just kind of fun because people can learn a little bit about about you and get some ideas for for what to do. Okay, so uh, here we go. Ten questions. Number one, your best or favorite book or podcast? Um, Book is Brief History of the Dead by Kevin Brockmeyer. Um, My favorite podcast is Radiolab. Oh, that's such a good one. I listen to that religiously. Like, wait for new episodes to come out. Your most recent binge watch? Um, Better Things for like the fourth time. Oh, nice. Uh, your favorite parenting moment of all times? Uh, we took Alex to a park um, right after it rained in Savannah right before we moved here. And he had just started to walk. He was like 18 months old. And he was just having a blast and like we just had we just had a really great time that day and I think yeah 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 it was just a really great time yeah. he was super happy and excited and kept falling over it was cute yeah like the, those no normal movements that are like yeah. this is what you envisioned yeah yeah um the best parenting advice you've ever gotten so I think people telling us like not to worry about him um specifically I've heard this my sister's an SLP and like we've heard this from his therapist too that like to stop worrying or caring about um, his development because there isn't enough evidence of 23 weeks, weekers to know what normal is. Mm -hmm. So like when, when every, like doctors will still say like, he's outside of normal development. Like it doesn't mean anything. Um, So it's like, we don't know what normal is for 23 weekers. So it just doesn't matter. Right. And, and he is not defined by when he meets those milestones and he is his own person. And, and yes, don't, don't, Don't worry about it. The worst parenting advice you've ever gotten. People keep telling me, I don't know if I want to get my tubes tied yet. And I'm like, but, but I do. <laughs> so they're like, don't do it. I'm like, don't even say that to me. I know what I want. Yes. Um, the other one I heard, I can't believe people say this. It wasn't even to me. It was, but they knew I was there. That it was these moms talking to each other about like their kids were chunky, I guess. And they're like, well, at least we know we're feeding our kids. If your kid's underweight, you must be doing something wrong. And I'm just like, really? <laughs> that's, 
excuse. I didn't say anything, but I was sitting there like, you guys can't say that kind of stuff. Because, like, I wasn't upset, but I'm, like, so many – that would, like, upset so many people. Yeah. Like, you know, I have a skinny little guy. <laughs> right. Or or for people that have a chunky kid, don't judge them until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Yeah. 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 I mean, either way, it's just, like, the commenting and making any kind of commenting, like, a parent, like, one parent's better than the other. Like, it doesn't – doesn't yeah. mean anything. No, doesn't mean anything. Just don't say it. Okay, question number six. The one thing that NICU moms should know about the NICU stay? Um, I think taking time for yourself and, like, not feeling guilty about that. Like, if that means a weekend or something, it's okay. It's not going to, like, make or break your child. Yeah, and your care team knows that life happens outside the NICU. And if your friend had her baby in the NICU, what would you give her or what would you tell her? Um, so I actually had one of the girls, was, oh my gosh, my station, um, what, another person at the station had a baby early um, as well. So I did, I took them like a care package and it was just like, like card games and books to read the baby and like a blanket for her um, and stuff like that. Just to, I think we took them like, oh, vending machine money and gift card to like a local restaurant, that kind of stuff. Um what would I tell them? Um, I mean, I think the same, just like taking time for yourself and don't be afraid to ask for help. Like that's, the, I have never, I don't like asking people for help, but I've never been in a position where I so desperately needed it. Like you just, you just need help and it is okay to ask. It's okay to be like, can you go put my underwear in the dryer at my house? Like stranger I just met. And they'll be like, yeah, like they have to do it. People have to do things for you. Yes. <laughs> so, it's Okay. Uh, if you could go back in time and tell yourself something at the very beginning of your journey, what would you tell yourself? Um, I think as I feel like this is so sad, but I think just that I would tell myself like, it's okay to have hope and you don't have to be like living in this space waiting so much and you can like enjoy a little more of the happier moments instead of just being all doom and gloom. I think that's really good advice. Um, I always tell people live through the bad stuff once, uh, don't live through it every day leading up to it when you don't even know if if it's going to happen. So I think right. that's actually really good advice. All right. Question nine. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to say? No, I don't think so. Okay. Everything. Okay. And then number 10, what are you grateful for today? Um. So yeah, I was thinking about that because it's funny. Um. I guess it's, this is I, so two and a half years old. It's supposed to be the terrible twos. Everybody talks bad about is like so fun. Like, so he's hilarious. And this was the time that I was like fantasizing about when I was in the NICU. Like not even, I wasn't really a kid person. So I didn't even really know what this like specific time period was, but I would like, like, I can't even picture a time when I'm like with this little kid and we're like doing things. And it's like, we like do things and we laugh and we like tickle and he likes to be on my shoulders. And he like is like super into books and is learning to sight read and stuff. And it's just so funny. Like he just, oh my gosh, he'll do the funniest stuff just to make anybody laugh. It just hit me one day when he had like passed from babyhood into toddlerhood that like, this is what I was dreaming of. And I think about it every single day that this is like, which I mean, I'm not, not that I like love my kid more, but it's something like, I am so grateful for him and, and what happened like every single day of his life. So, um, 
yeah, it's just, it's a pretty special time right now. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Gretchen, I, I just cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. And I'm so glad that Alex is doing so well. And, uh, it was really fun talking to you. It was good talking to you too. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.